0: DataBytes Bytes are data and society speaker series designed to bridge our interdisciplinary research with broader public conversations about the societal implications of data and automation. Tonight we are joined by three leaders in their respective fields, Rachel Schneider, Carmen Rojas, and Tamara K. Knopper. Three women will be discussing and debating the entrenched income volatility faced by workers in the U.S., the responses to this challenge and what this says about our existing social structures that support work and employment. So first we have Rachel Schneider, who is the Omidyar Network Entrepreneur-in-Residence at the Aspen Institute Financial Security Program and co-author of the Financial Diaries, How American Families Cope in a World of Uncertainty. Dr. Carmen Rojas is the co-founder and CEO of the Workers' Lab, an organization that invests in experiments and innovations to build power for working people in the 21st century. Tamara K. Knopper has a PhD in sociology, and her teaching and research focuses on the intersection of economic, racial, and gender inequality. So at this point, I'm going to turn it over to Rachel, who's going to start us off.
1: Thank you. Um, so thanks, everyone, for being here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, so I'm going to anchor our conversation in a story from the research that I did called the US Financial Diaries. And in that project, I was partnered with a professor at NYU named Jonathan Mordock and we led a research team where we gathered data from 235 families across the U.S. for a full year. And it was a really intensive project. Essentially, we had field researchers going to meet with families every few weeks to try and understand every single dollar that came in and out of their homes. Every dollar they saved, borrowed, earned, spent, we wanted information about it. And because we were collecting the information in person, we also got to hear the backstory. And so it was a really unusual quantitative and qualitative look at the economic lives of Americans. The research, we did the research in in four different locations across the US. Um, And so there was a lot of diversity in the research sample. Um, The key thing though is that everyone we were talking with had to be working. That was, at least when we started the year, one of the criterion was that every household that we worked with had to have somebody in it who was working. We were looking at, to understand the lives of people who were lower to middle income. So nobody that we talked to was the wealthiest in their neighborhood, but nobody was the poorest either. Um, and so, um, so I'll just tell the story of one family that we met, um, a couple um, named Becky and Jeremy. They live in Ohio, close to um, a major city, but not in a city, and they have three kids. And one of the days that, um, my co-author Jonathan was out there talking with them. Becky was in a really terrible mood. She was like worried, kind of like distracted. It was a gorgeous day, and Jonathan said, "You know what's going on? Like, why? Why are you in such a like? Why are you um, unsettled?" And Becky said, "Well, our mortgage is due in in about three weeks. I have the cash now. I'd really like to pay that bill and be done with that bill. When I know I'm done with that bill, I will feel way easier." Um, and yet she was worried that if she paid that bill now, then in three weeks when it was actually, when her husband got his paycheck, if it was short, if it was a low paycheck, she would have to go borrow money from her sister. And she did not want to borrow money from her sister. And she said, you know, I'm lucky because my sister has a really stable job and she doesn't have kids, so she has extra money. And I can rely on her, but I don't want to rely on her. And when I rely on her, then I've got to, like, then I do chores around her house to make up for it. And It changes our relationship in ways I don't want. And what was going on for them was not that they had unstable employment in a technical sense. right? So Jeremy, her husband, works full time. And Becky works part time on the side to make extra money. But what was going on is that even though he works 40 hours a week, week after week, Jeremy's pay goes up and down. And it does that because he fixes long haul trucks. He's a mechanic and he is supposed to show up for a 40-hour shift over the course of the week, but he gets paid on commission, depending on how many hours, how many trucks actually come in. So in the summer and in the winter, when weather is tougher on trucks, he makes more money. And this was October, and she wasn't sure. Like, are we still a, is this still a good month, or, or is it becoming a bad month? And so what we learned during doing the study was that this experience was really typical. So for the most part, we're not relying on slides, but I'm going to put up one visual, um, Rigo, if you put the slide, because I feel like it helps to make this point. Um, This is what incomes look like for people, right? So our, our assumption about people's financial lives is that they are steady. If you work, they are steady. But the reality is that what we saw was that very few people had enough months that were average that that idea of steadiness really holds. So on average in our sample, people had five months in the year where income was outside of the plus or minus 25% against their average monthly income, right? So think of it as five times in the month, in the year, their monthly paycheck was either more than 25% over their average or under their average. And when we actually, we use that 25% band, up and down bandwidth in order to connect to other research that's been done in the field around volatility year over year, which has been going up dramatically over the last three decades. And that's the benchmark researchers have been using. But when we actually look at what kinds of swings we're seeing, they're plus or minus 50% on average. huge swings up and down. And um, so it kind of throws all your assumptions about budgeting out the window. I usually spend my life in rooms of people who are focused on financial counseling and designing good financial products and making sure people have equal access to credit. And in all of those conversations, the assumption is that we can teach people to budget and then set that budget and move on. And the assumption is that we don't have to worry so much about the small financial decisions, let's help people make the big ones, right? Let's help people think about retirement, let's help people think about home ownership. But what this picture shows is that Becky is not thinking about home ownership and retirement, she is thinking about is next month a good month and can I pay my bills? And that really brings your focus in and makes you think differently about the safety net, I think, in general. So, how, and it makes you think differently, I think, about what kinds of financial products people need. So what does Becky do to handle this? A handful of things, like she's fully banked, right? They have checking accounts and savings accounts. She doesn't really rely on those to manage this volatility. What she does is she stocks her freezer. So when they have a big month, and she stocks her pantry. So she's, she makes a joke, you know, that her freezer is full of pork chops and she will never have to buy toothpaste again. Because when she has a chunk of money and she sees a good deal, She locks that in, and you could think of that as a way of savings, right? Um, And I think that way of savings has a few advantages, right? It's tangible. It helps her sleep at night. She knows the big stuff's taken care of. And she jokes that you can't buy movie tickets with a pork chop, right? You're you're locked in in advance. Um, But I think what that story is also showing, like what her experience shows us, is the huge gap that exists in financial services today, like. A savings account is not actually helping her meet her savings objectives. Um, and I, I have you know, a whole raft of stories like that about how broken the financial services we deliver to people are. And um, I'm sure we'll get into more of that in the panel. I think it, it connects directly to how we think about workplace benefits. Where again, like this, the financial benefits that we tend to give people are ones that help with these big long-term far-off goals. There, we don't do as much to help workers with the near-term stuff. And yet, the stuff that's keeping them up at night is often that near term stuff. So I'll stop there. I look forward to the conversation about all this. Can you hand it over to yeah. you? Hi, are you one? I can
2: remove this. Oh, no, he I want to keep this Oh, look at the this.
1: So
2: um, there are. Four seats up front, just in case, because I'm a caller-outer of the people standing in the back. Um, so please feel free to be really close. You'll get a special prize, um, I promise you. Um, thank you so much Data and Society for this event. I'm really so happy to be here and uh, really thankful to my friendship with Dana, when we started the workers lab, I feel like I met Dana and she sort of expanded the universe of what I even imagined was possible for working people by introducing information about technology um, and how the technology was being used at that point for for bad but also the promise of how it might be used in different ways right how to think about social movement so thank you uh, and i'm really happy to be here uh, my name is carmen rojas and i run an organization called the workers lab uh, we are a lab that invests in innovations and experiments that build power for working people um, and really what that means is that we know that in the 20th century collective bargaining was critical to building a middle class in this country and we've just seen a rapid decline of the ability of workers to organize. So we've been charged with trying to find all of the other ways that we can make workers, working people's lives better. Uh, we do this in a couple of ways. So we have an innovation fund that we run twice a year uh, and give a whole host of people, um, since a broad range of folks, $150,000 for 12 months just to try something new. So. Our last innovation fund winners include a cannabis um, accelerator program in Oakland that's trying to get previously incarcerated folks to understand what the labor implications are for the cannabis economy, um, to sort of more traditional co-ops. And we landed in this field of work almost by uh, accident at a meeting that I was at about a year ago Uh, And a year ago there was a really rich conversation that was happening about the rise of gig work and Uber taking over the streets and changing the economy. Um, And in that conversation was a kernel of uh, of thought that we needed to actually rethink the benefit structures for working people and we needed a portable benefit. So it was gig workers and portable benefits. Um, And the things that I left a couple of meetings feeling were on the one side, the conversations were often organized like, we need 1099 contractors to be W-2 workers. And the assumption there was that if you worked at McDonald's as a low-wage worker, your life was exponentially better than if you drove for Uber. And what we kept on seeing in the numbers was that they were equally as poor. um, And that the set of benefits and uh, protections that were afforded to them legally were often impossible for them to use. So one was that. The second was in the portable benefits conversation specifically, it was like we were solving uh, a 21st century uh, century problem with 20th century tools. So the only things people could imagine were things that you can plan like healthcare or these long-term things like retirement. And so I met Rachel, read the financial diaries, and I was like, how come nobody in the world of work is actually thinking about how to meet these short-term financial needs? How to meet the short-term financial needs? Why is the only option borrowing from your sister or at its best or payday lending at its worst? And why aren't worker organizations entering more fully into a conversation about the range of financial needs that working people have? So about a year ago, I read the book, was like, yes, we need to figure this out. And we're a doer organization, so we started a design sprint. Um, And the whole focus was to try to answer three questions. So if we were working to get working people $1,000 when they needed it, who pays? Because as Rachel was saying, a lot of the burden in the current system is placed on working people. So they're like, save a quarter every two weeks, and then in five years, when you have a financial emergency, you'll have $500. But that just seems absurd. We believed that either contract companies or employers should be paying it and we wanted to create a precedent for that. The second question was how much? I feel like we landed on the $1,000 problem almost because it sounds really, it's like quippy. Um, but we knew that, that uh, it could go as high as $2,500 and as low as $400. But we didn't actually have a bunch of information about that. And then the last thing is, what did, how do we get this money to workers with the least amount of friction? Right? So right now, working people have to bear the greatest burden to get this money. We convened a group of people that include Rachel, uh, a group called Commonwealth that actually builds financial products. David Weil, who worked for President Obama and set like wage and hour policy and wrote The Fissured Workplace. And we set on this journey to actually build something to get working people $1,000 when they need it. So we started, we did explorations, understood the landscape, and reached a point, I would say that in the last couple of weeks where we started doing a pilot and a pre-pilot uh, for the product. where. As a, well, I'm, I'm gonna say this, but then Rachel can say, no, no, that's not true. <laughs> this is a good thing about being on a panel together. I feel like I had the insight about a week, a week or two ago where we were thinking about this as a problem that could be solved by the market, right? So we were talking to the largest gig companies and we're like, well, would you pay into this thing so that your, your drivers or your cleaners or your delivery people would have $1,000 when they needed it? And the overwhelmingly, there was no, we never had anybody say no. Uh, and we're at the point where people wanting wanted to say yes. And uh, we were really excited. I was like, this is amazing. People actually really want to, why has this been so difficult? How come nobody's ever asked them this before? And when we started making this announcement about the design sprint, we also had a number of W2 employers and associations of W2 employers approach us and say, hey, our workers have this issue too. Can you include W2 workers into this design sprint? The insight for me came at the moment where we started actually scratching the surface of where the money was gonna come from in the companies. Um, and, that wasn't, uh, and that wasn't a part of the, that was, our question was who pays? And it wasn't how do they pay, right? So I just wanna set that out there. We're still in the who pays. Um, but more and more we started seeing companies that were interested in using charitable dollars to pay this thousand dollars. So uh, a company doesn't pay their workers enough, (laughs) they don't have a thousand dollars to solve this issue, uses their philanthropic arm to cover this, and then gets like the double bonus, right? They get the bonus of saying, hey, we're helping our workers solve this problem, but then they get the tax bonus of actually using charitable dollars to meet like a structural problem built into the institution. So I feel like personally, I've made this very, like insight right like when you're in a research process the insight for me is that this is no longer a financial product problem this is a social policy problem that our current social safety net has left a huge uh, issue confronting working people on the table and has left it to the most predatory people in the market to try to address and are now I feel like in this point in our design where we're still gonna go through get people a thousand dollars see what we learned But we understand that there has to be a government mandate, that that government fundamentally needs to play a role in both protecting workers so that their only options aren't predatory, but also in actually making sure that they get this money when they need it. Um, So I'll leave it at that. So first of all, my name is
3: Tamara, and I wanna thank um, IHA for inviting me to be part of this presentation as well as CJ and Beth for their work on this, as well as the other uh, Data & Society staff and volunteers. Um, this is my second time here and I really enjoy the space. And also it's very nice to be in conversation with Rachel and with Carmen. <clears throat> I took a train today from Providence and I'm about to leave right after this and go back. Mm-hmm. But to me, you travel and you kind of do the work to be part of conversations you want to be part of. So I'm very grateful to be part of this. Uh, so one thing is, is that um, as I have mentioned, a lot of my work has looked at kind of ethnic banking and globalization and banking. Um, and so in that process, I looked at how banks kind of dealt with immigrants and how the US federal government dealt with immigrants. And so I'm starting to transition into thinking about things like credit scoring and risk assessment and what that means for kind of um, uh, the racial wealth gap. So one thing is, uh, today when we were on the train, we got the text alert from President Trump. Did everybody else get their text alert, right? Um, The man next to me didn't get his, he looked a little sad, but um, I'm sure it's coming, as I told him, right? But one thing is, I don't know if you saw recently that President Trump's administration is considering using credit scores for immigrants, right? Um, And so this is something where uh, the concern is of immigrants becoming what they call a quote-unquote public charge. And this is something that has been part of immigration policy since the 1800s. The concern that immigrants will be a kind of financial burden or drain on the system. So if we think about some of the immigration policies that have targeted immigrants regarding welfare use, right? That's been kind of part of that um, uh, trajectory. And so this raises an interesting question, um, given that about four and a half billion globally are either unbanked or don't have kind of a credit standing. So unbanked means usually that you don't have kind of a formal relationship with a bank in terms of a uh, checking or savings account. So when people are talking about kind of alternative banking like payday loans and so forth, um, and trying to find kind of access to quick money, um, this is some of the uh, realities of being unbanked. And so one of the things that I've been thinking about is about the politics of being unbanked and about the effort to bank unbanked people, right? Um, And this is something that increasingly uh, big banks have been doing. So I don't know if you heard some of the controversy uh, about a month ago where Bank of America, one of the largest banks in the US, um, was sending out requests for people's citizenship status. right? And this was happening to both people who were immigrants but also people who were US citizens, and they were asking people to verify their citizenship status. So you had all these journalists uh, you know, kind of asking questions and asking uh, bankers, associations, and cities, is this necessary? Um, the Department of Treasury does not require banks to collect citizenship status data, right? And so this is something that the banks themselves are doing. Um, and Bank of America said, oh, we've been doing this for a while and so forth. And one of the things that kind of struck me about it, since I had studied uh, some of the ways banks try to kind of target immigrants, is that Bank of America, if you don't know, like years ago, was very aggressive in trying to target undocumented immigrants as customers, right? And in particular, undocumented Latino immigrants. And so um, this is where if we think about alternative forms of data identification, um, such as a counselor card from another country, um, Bank of America, you know, you have op eds and newspapers where Bank of America officials are defending their use of it. They were being dragged on Fox News and other you know um, uh, news sources for helping, quote unquote, you know, undocumented immigrants get ahead. There was all these concerns about would this lead to kind of increased terrorism and so forth. And Bank of America was an institution that very aggressively defended, right? And they used this language of helping the unbanked, of trying to do good right Um, so when you're talking about the ways they can kind of pose you know these institutions can pose themselves right as doing a social good but there was a lot of questions about was this an effort obviously to make money and bank of america was also trying to change some of its business habits because it had been losing money right and so um this is stuff where i'm thinking a lot about what does it mean to try to bank the unbanked because that becomes kind of Um, a dominant kind of alternative that's often posed, and it's posed by um, everyone from financial institutions to sometimes community advocacy groups to immigrant rights groups and so forth. And on one hand, we know the realities of what it means to be unbanked in terms of some of the stuff that you um, have uncovered in your research and working with the constituencies you have um, in terms of payday lenders, right? Um, People being charged exorbitant interest rates and so forth. But one of the things that I've been thinking about, and there's two scholars that if you haven't heard of them, I want to put on your radar, or three scholars um, who've written a couple of articles. One is, One is Rob Aiken, and he's a political scientist. And he has this very controversial title um, of an article called All Data is Credit Data. And he's thinking about um, precariousness. And he says, you know, a lot of times we think about uh, financial precariousness as being excluded. But what are the predatory ways that people become, you know, their lives are economically precarious through inclusion, right? And then... um, there are two sociologists. Well, I think one is a sociologist. I'm not sure if the other one would claim that, but we'll claim him as a sociologist. Uh, Louise Seamster and Raphael Charon Chenier, and they have a concept called predatory inclusion. And this is a concept that they've had in a couple of sociological articles. And they're talking about, um, they talk about, for example, a um, uh, black recipients of education loans and how the, um, a lot of times the terms of the, those loans are much more predatory. But how people use kind of the um, discourse of inclusion, um, they play up on people being marginalized, being wanting to have access right, and having been systematically denied access. And so they use this term, I'm sorry, this is where, okay, here we go. They say predatory inclusion refers to a process whereby members of a marginalized group are provided with access to a good, service, or opportunity from which they have historically been excluded, but under conditions that jeopardize the benefits of access. Indeed, processes of predatory inclusion are often presented as providing marginalized individuals with opportunities for social and economic progress. In the long term, however, predatory inclusion reproduces inequality and insecurity for some, while allowing already dominant social actors to drive significant profits, right? And so this is something where I'm thinking about kind of this double-edged sword. On one hand, people need access to financial institutions. They need access to um, better financial products, ones that think about their lives, right? On the other hand, it also means that you're kind of being brought into a system of kind of governmentality, big data collection, right? And where, and this is something I talked about in the Future Perfect event I was at in the summer here, um, it becomes where a whole range of activities become data towards your quote unquote character. If risk assessment a lot of times is assumptions about character, about risk, who can be trusted and so forth. And so this is something where um, when we think about uh, some of the efforts to kind of bank the unbanked, right? Whether it's Bank of America kind of targeting people um, for um, and using kind of alternative forms of identification, a lot of those loans that they targeted undocumented immigrants with, um, that had very high interest rates, right? And so this is where sometimes kind of, I think, there's a blurred line. I mean, they're not as high of interest rates as payday lenders, let's say, but they're very high interest rates. And so sometimes the lines begin to blur between kind of banking practices and alternative banking practices, right? Um, but it also becomes a question about kind of big data collection. So Bank of America was asked, for example, will you turn over this data to the government? And they were like, oh, we would never do that, da 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 da, right? But this is data that they're collecting just by virtue of kind of targeting the undocumented folks, right? There's a certain way where they know a certain amount of them are undocumented just by the documents that they're having them give as alternative forms of documentation. But also, on top of that, to have you fill out a form saying, are you a citizen or not, right, means that that becomes even more data on a wider group of people, including U.S. citizens. And so it means that these financial institutions are collecting so much information about our lives that can also be issues around security breaches, um, if they are asked to report that data, and also how does that data become part of internal banking decisions, right? Um, And so this is something where I'm thinking about one of the things that um, uh, Rob Aiken says about how the unbanked themselves is its own profile that there's this idea that the unbanked are quote unquote unknown and that they have to kind of be brought into kind of banking, right? Um, And we have similar discourses around immigration, this idea of like out of the shadows, right? And kind of be brought into um, visibility. But there's this way where um, one of the things he's suggesting is that to be already identified as unbanked or unbankable um, is to already be sorted in a kind of a certain category in which you're already kind of being Um, pushed into kind of certain segmentation or into terms of certain products. So one of the things I show my students, um, a lot of my students don't know that this is the 10th year anniversary of the financial crisis, right? And we're seeing a lot of kind of think pieces about what we've learned from that. So they don't know what subprime mortgages are. And so one of the things we've learned about in my sociology classes is redlining and about people being systematically discriminated. But I talked to them about predatory lending so they get kind of an understanding of what are we dealing with in terms of the contemporary racial wealth gap and subprime mortgages. And I show them this story about Wells Fargo where Beth Jacobson, who is one of the people who testified about their subprime mortgage lending, she said that you know, mortgage lenders would describe black people as quote, unquote, mud people. Right. And they had described certain loans as ghetto loans. And these are direct quotes from these news stories, right? And so there's a way where there's, you know, what I think Aiken is doing is he's helping me think through the way in which I've been thinking through unbankedness. I've been thinking through unbankedness as you're unbanked, now they're gonna have more alternative data on you, and now you know this could be a problem. I think that's still the case. But he's actually saying to even be kind of categorized as unbanked itself means that you're kind of already being pushed into kind of certain segmentation. Oh, but this is the thing about kind of um, thinking through unbankedness as itself, its own kind of category of of calculation, right? So, all right, thank you.
0: All right, well, thank you so much, all three of you, for dropping so much knowledge right there. I wanted to, to start by asking, you know, it seems to me that to some extent the current situation facing workers is a call for a change in workplace benefits. Um, but it could also be seen as a call for demanding that employers uh, do better, right? One is pay more, but also maybe pay on time, um, pay more frequently. And I'm reminded um, of a story I recently read about a journalist who was outraged to learn that Um, Because the paper that he had written for didn't pay him in time, he could use this program called Fast Forward, or or it's work work world, work market, to get paid what he was owed for a fee. So his his company hadn't paid for him, but now he could get his money, but he'd have to pay for it because it wasn't on time. So um, I'm kind of wondering how do you feel about either of those situations and what what do you think were really which which is actually more of the truth yeah either or oh, which is more of the truth or well how do you see it um,
1: all right I, maybe we, it's not neither well um so I, as, so this makes me think of some of the points that both of the brilliant women sitting next to me made um on the one hand um Th- that kind of service is trying to replicate the benefit of being an employee. Like in theory, one of the benefits of being an employee is that there are rules around how often you have to get paid. And if your employer does not pay you al- according to the time periods set by legislation, in theory you can go and lodge a complaint somewhere and there should be an enforcement action. Now, as Carmen points out, like the reality of that is um, imperfect to say the least. Right, and so wage theft is a real issue for low wage workers of, in all sorts of industries. So in theory, so, and the reason that makes me think of, um, of what Tamara was saying is that um, the reality often doesn't match the objective, right? So the objective in that product is to be able to enable people to be paid faster. That is allegedly, that's the goal, right? And in fact, if you're a contractor and you're not being paid quickly, like that's an important need that you have to fulfill. But in this case, they're, what they're doing is then charging the worker a pretty massive transaction fee. And so the product itself sucks, unequivocally sucks. Um, and so um, where you're, what you're left with is an attempt to use the market to solve a problem that's being really left um, to individuals to work through when actually it's a problem that deserves regulation and enforcement as well as innovation because there is something useful for in contracting relationships, there is something useful to having um, a contractor and a payer, a, a, you know, a buyer of those services and having somebody else who manages the payment in between. Like that may be a good market solution, but we do need regulation then around um, fees so that the person who has the least power in this situation doesn't get screwed, which is what's happening in the story that you shared, right? Um, where the worker is the one paying the fee, and it's a big fee. And so that seems wrong. Um, that's the person with the least power, the least economic cushion to, with which to absorb the fee. And you're essentially like um, shifting a whole bunch of the costs of having work get done onto the worker. Um, right, the cost of paying somebody, the cost of managing accounts receivable, it's not, there's no argument for why the worker should bear that. And I would say Jeremy, in the story I'm telling, is the exact same thing, right? What's happening in his situation is that his workplace is passing on the risk of ups and downs in demands for their services to him. Mm-hmm. And so I'd say, like, we are, who, so it really, to me, becomes a question of who is best able to bear risk? You wanna spread risk across groups. That's the underlying idea of insurance in all forms, is that you want to spread a risk across a lots of people so that it doesn't hit anybody hard. But what you're seeing in the labor market is increasingly shifts of work, of the shift of risks that are really if supposed to be borne by corporations. That's the purpose of creating corporations. Um, and those risks are being shifted to individual workers.
0: And, and before, I, before you speak, Carmen, I just wanted to mention a lot of the companies that are filling this space are what are called fintech companies. So it, it's, it's, it may not yet be part of traditional banking, although it seems like they're acquiring some of them, but it's it's a different category.
2: I also think that there's a really funny position that I, I find myself in, right? Like we're the worker's lab, we're focused on worker issues. We are mostly talking about wages and earnings. And one of the things that this project and, and Rachel's work specifically has brought to light is that people need all different kinds of money, right? Like you need access to debt to buy a house or to buy a car unless you have all that money up front. And like even rich people use debt. I mean, one of the things that we've we've learned in the last couple of days is how Donald Trump's dad has moved money over time uh, and increased, like has created different vehicles for moving money to solve specific problems. From the worker organization perspective, solving for wages. Helps to solve one thing, but it doesn't help to solve for the whole host of other issues that working people need money for. I do agree. Like we can increase wages infinite, so that people can save enough money over five years to buy a house outright, and then make invisible the debt market or debt as a as a vehicle. Or. Yes and, (laughs) today people need debt for things and people have emergency expenses and we should be trying to figure out what the map or uh, the tapestry of financial needs that working people have above and beyond meeting their needs through wages and actually start to build uh, and understand a safety net that can actually respond to the range of those needs.
0: Did Did you want to answer, Tamara?
2: Well, you know, when you're talking, I was thinking about,
3: um, so I used to be involved in immigrant rights activism, and so actually, like, when you're talking about LA, I was thinking about, um, like, I used to, I went to an immigrant rights training, we were, like, protesting the guy who ran Forever 21, right? So we're outside the store, and we're chanting his name and everything, right? And I was thinking about just, like, how a lot of times, um, while you guys were, while you both were talking, um, how a lot of times we kind of focus on companies as like the employer in terms of like the employer who's not paying the fair amount of wages or the employer. So I'm thinking about you know some of these campaigns I was a part of or that we supported or that we were familiar with in immigrant rights work um, where they're kind of holding the employer accountable for the wages. But I was thinking about, you know, is it better, and I'm not saying like I came up with this idea, but is it better sometimes for us to think about the company itself in terms of like how are they impacting society overall? So both in terms of wages, but if we think about like Jeff Bezos, right? And so we heard about how Amazon is now going to pay $15 an hour, and there's all this debate about, you know, is this kind of a, a slick move on his part? Did Bernie Sanders push? I mean, there's, you know, there's a whole bunch of Twitter talk about it, okay? But the thing is, you know, we know that Amazon has all these problems in terms of their taxes, yeah. right? And so this is what I mean about thinking about the difference between targeting an employer and thinking about the employer only in terms of wages, but thinking about the company overall and what is the company doing to society, both in terms of wages, and this gets into stuff around like environmental. Um, where do they lobby, right? Who, um, uh, what taxes do they have? Because if we're thinking about a social safety net, it's also about, you know, what tax money we have and then also how do we use it, right? Um, So if we think about like Walmart, um, I remember one time like MSNBC Mm -hmm. They're trying to, you know, make a point, and I don't think like the idea of a welfare queen can be rehabilitated. I just think that's a terrible, you know, kind of image. But they're trying to say that Walmart was the biggest, quote unquote, welfare queen. And their point, even though they use like a, you know, a terrible uh, analogy there, they're trying to say because so many Walmart workers are paid so low, a lot of Walmart workers are required to get um, public assistance, and that this is a way of thinking about how Walmart impacts the society overall, right, as a company. And so I think um, there's ways of thinking about how we target an employer for specific campaigns around wages, around specific work conditions. But I think when we're thinking about a company's role in the overall society, it can be helpful to think on multiple levels, if that makes sense.
0: Definitely, that does. Um, and so to that, to that point of you know, the role of different parts of, of different institutions, do you think that, since this is data and society, I have to bring the tech back into it, um, so, some companies like Uber do allow like instant pay, or people getting paid right away, right when they need their money. And on the opposite extreme, you have federal employees which are paid once a month. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems like being paid right away is a good thing, and there are new tech and fi- financial institutions that are offering this. Um, what role should they play in the future of work as work becomes more precarious, as hours fluctuate as people work in multiple jobs? I mean, you know, waiting um, waiting a month to get paid for your primary job and then getting paid every two weeks for another job might might be, be a good thing. Um, and then, you know, what role do you think they would play, and what would you suggest that can be that can be done differently so that we're not? sort of replicating what you suggested, which is another predatory program, just calling it fintech.
1: We, I'm starting again, I, whoever, I, I'm, starting again. Uh, I, I'm starting again, everybody. We have a, we have an, a, it's a habit now, but so the next time I'm not starting. Um, so um, the idea of being paid bi-weekly or monthly is arbitrary and not consistent with today's anything. Right? Like what else do you, ha- like, right? It's, it's sort of on its face, odd, in the sense that you don't, um, like why, that, why those time periods exactly, right? So the background, like the historical precedent, like the historical reasons make sense, right? At some point, it cost money to sound out checks and companies didn't wanna do that every day. So they picked a cadence on which to send out checks. Then there were issues about employees not being paid. So um, protections were put in to make sure you were paid often enough. Mm-hmm. But now, like, it's not expensive to pay people because you're running it over electronic rails. You're not sending out paper checks by mail. And so in that context, the idea of getting a bi-monthly payment is arbitrary. And what we've seen in people's financial lives is that they have this incredible volatility and they need to be able to access money um, often more immediately than waiting for two weeks. So in that context, like giving people access to money they've earned more quickly just seems to me um, kind of an obvious direction that our society would go given how technology has changed the speed of everything else, right? Um, like everything else has gotten faster, why not your paycheck? Is sort of how I think of it. On the other hand, what you see is that um, it is very hard for people not to spend the money that they have and be- behavioral economists in particular, I had a big fight about these um, payment vehicles once with a behavioral economist who was arguing that actually forcing people to wait two weeks for their money is an important way of helping them to manage their spending. And in fact, what you see on the platforms like Uber is that people drive more when they need cash and that instant payment is a powerful incentive to work more. Mm-hmm. And that seems problematic to me in a different direction, right? Because um, we don't actually want people to have to work all the time. And we do, people do need, as you saw, like as I told the story of Becky, like people need help budgeting. It's not easy. It's not. It's, it's a hard work as a human to delay gratification of the future, especially if you're living at the edge of your spending ability because you don't make enough for what a normal life in America costs. Um, so I think it's actually a little complicated. Like On the one hand, of course, you should get people access to their money. On the other hand, you want to design financial services that enable people to live their best lives. Hmm. And so I actually think in this case, what Walmart did is is I don't know if it's quite a best practice. I don't know if we know enough to say it's a best practice, but I think it's in the right direction. What they did is they instituted a, um, a fintech solution where you as a Walmart worker can get access to your money in between paychecks. Um, but you can only do it, and Walmart pays for that service, so they're not passing that fee on to their workers. You can only do it a certain number of times a year. Mm-hmm. If you want to do it more than that, you start paying for it yourself, so there's some disincentive to do it. And I th- like I think that's... That's directionally right. Um, is it will it turn out to be exactly right for workers? i don't I don't know. But to me, it, what it does is it honors the reality of today's financial lives and how quickly other things in life move. Um, it puts a lot of control in the hands of the individual who is going to actually use their money to pay their bills and should get some choice about when they get that money, therefore. But at the same time, it r- recognizes that people make have a hard time making good financial choices and um, should be like given some boundaries within which to not screw up too badly. Hmm. So that's my take. Go on to your next question, buddy.
2: Oh, no, you want to move on. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I feel like that was a good. Was a good there, answer. There. Oh,
0: good. You're in agreement. You're in agreement with Rachel. Okay. Did you? Did you? I'm, gonna, I'm gonna. I'm gonna upset the
2: the order already. Right now. <laughs> well,
3: uh, part of it is I'm thinking about. You know, so I am doing some work on fintech companies that. Um, Like our online lenders right and this is increasingly um changing kind of the banking landscape Um, and some of them are doing things like tracking your social media and using alternative data and so forth um and one Mm -hmm. thing that when we had a conference call with all four of us as well cj um Rachel said something I thought was really interesting about kind of, well, the way we think about fintech, right? There's actually a lot of fintech, and it's not just these kind of online lenders. So what you were saying about Walmart, that yeah. be an example of fintech. And I think one things that when we think about kind of um, the way that you're talking about kind of work today, it's also increasingly a conversation about kind of your access to certain technology and your relationship to it. So when you're talking about kind of certain ways that people can get paid quickly, right? Usually it means having um, a relationship to certain institutions, but also having a relationship to like a smartphone or something. I mean, you know what I mean? Um, And so there's stuff about um, the role of kind of certain technology becoming much more instrumental in just getting paid. Um, Part of the reason why payday lending actually emerges to the degree it does in like the 1990s, where it like really explodes as an industry is because some people have argued is because of the rise of like direct deposit, right, which would be a form of financial technology, right, and that more people and that um, payday lenders were trying to go after more checks because they were just getting less checks, so they became kind of more aggressive and kind of and so forth and trying to get a market and everything. So there's all these ways that like I think technology is shaping, you know, both work and we're, you're thinking about that here with the stuff with Uber, but also it's shaping how we get paid and how quickly we get paid. And the way we also maybe think about our bosses and our and the companies in terms of, you know, I would probably like my boss if I thought I could get paid quicker, like with Walmart, even if Walmart's paying me so badly. Right. And so there's also a way like how does kind of quick payment through technology also sometimes stunt maybe a more critical view of kind of the employer, right? Mm-hmm. And and of like the wages and why like I need that money so quickly in the first place. So
0: anyway, so well, okay. uh we are over time. So one more round of applause for our speakers, please.